Well, good morning, church. Man, it is a blessing to be home. Uh, some of you know that uh, I've been away for the last couple of weeks. My wife and I got to travel to Israel and to walk where Jesus walked and to see some incredible things. And I can't wait to share those stories uh, with you. But today, uh, today's going to be a little different. And I'll tell you about that in a moment. Before I do, I just want to take a moment to celebrate all the good things that God is doing in our house. I mean, can we give God praise for bringing Zach to us to lead us in worship? Praise God that we've got... Zach in the house. It's just a wonderful, wonderful blessing to have that. Thank you, uh, Riley and Lisa, for sharing that uh, incredible moment uh, at communion and over the offering. Just what a blessing. What a blessing it is to gather in this place. You saw the video, if you were here, when we started this morning uh, of what God did through many of you last week and Engage Sunday. And what a blessing to be a part of a church where we can say we're going to take a Sunday and not just come, if you will, do church, which I know that's not correct, but you know what I'm saying, but actually practice being the church in our community and love the people around us enough to, to pause and to just put into practice what we preach every single Sunday. And I praise God for what God did through so many of you last week. And to see the video and the pictures are just uh, amazing. The week before that was Harvest Sunday, and this is the first chance we've had to even talk about or celebrate that. Some of you were here that day. Some of you had a chance to give. Some of you still want to be able to give, and you can still give online or through your app. Just choose Harvest Sunday when you give, or bring one of our shepherds. Don't bring me a check. I'll lose it, but bring one of them, uh, or surely she's trustworthy, a check. But uh, I want to share with you this good news, that on Harvest Sunday, as a church, you gave $116,148. What an amazing gift. That is just awesome, and God is going to use those resources over this next year to continue the good work uh, that, is, that is going from this church or literally around the world to places like Honduras and Greece and even here in our own neighborhoods and communities. And so I praise God for the way, like Raleigh said, this church truly is a church of uncommon generosity, and I praise God. I just praise God for that heart that is true of us and true of you. Uh, this morning, uh, as Grayson mentioned as we began, we begin a new series called Forgiving God. And if you saw that and you were like, what is Corey thinking? Uh, let me explain. Give me a chance. Uh, I do believe, I do believe that for so many people, including myself, there have been times in your life, seasons in your life, and maybe today, maybe this is a season in your life where maybe life hasn't worked out the way that you thought it would. Maybe you've got a long list of unmet expectations Maybe there's been some loss, some hurt, some pain. Uh, about a year ago, I was thinking about this series and about this day, and I came across these words of Paul that you've probably read a thousand times, but maybe you haven't read these lines by themselves. When Paul says in Romans 8, maybe one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, he said, does it mean that God no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute, or in danger, or threatened with death. And those words just struck my heart as I thought about our church and so many of you who I know who are struggling. And I wonder if you've ever asked that same question. Does it mean that God no longer loves us when we suffer? So a year ago, when I had this idea for this series, I was sitting in my office and I sent a text to my good friend, Jason Bybee, and I asked him if he would come this day, almost a year later, and begin this series with his story and a word from God from the book of Job. And you may or may not read Job often, but it's a story of a man who went through incredible pain, who suffered a great deal, and I'm sure had this exact same question on his heart. 
Jason, I'm going to ask you to come up, and I want to just pray over you, and then I'll let you take it from there. Church, if you would, let's, let's pray together. God, we say this often, and we begin with this confession again today that you are good, and your love endures forever. But God, you know that for so many of us in our human experience, sometimes if we can just admit it, it doesn't feel that way. Sometimes we feel far from you because of what's happening in our lives and the pain and the trouble and the loss and the grief and the hardships we're having to endure. And Father, over the next few weeks, and especially today, I pray that you would just begin the process of allowing us to forgive you. Again, not that you've done anything wrong, but Father, just we want to let go of those hurts and those pains and be able to enter back into relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. So, Father God, I pray that you speak to and speak through my friend Jason today. God, what an honor it is to have him here with us. And I pray you you bless him. I mean, you bless us, Father. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. All right. Well, thank you, Corey, and, and good morning, Riverside. Uh, God has, has really uh, seen fit to make our church's kingdom partners in a really special way. I, I've been hearing about... Uh, this church for a long, long time, for, for several years now, and so it's great to be able to put some, uh, some faces with the name. Um, I minister and serve a, a church in uh, North Alabama in the Huntsville area. Uh, it's a church where Margaret Ann Tucker grew up, so I've known her for a, a long, long time. Uh, we were blessed to have uh, Margaret Ann and Grayson serving in our uh, our ministry, uh, serving our families in student ministry for several years before they moved here. So uh, it is, it is uh, we kind of have a lot of pride with the good things that are going on there as well. And, and for about 10 years, our church family was blessed to have Corey and Alicia Trevathan and their very young family at that time, still a young family, but uh, when it all kind of came together for them, they served in our church family for, for many years there as well. So so God has kind of seen fit to, to make us ministry partners in kind of a unique way because our churches have, have shared in the joy of watching these two couples minister together, right? And so because of that, it's, it's just a, a privilege and an honor for me to be able to come and to, to spend some time with you all. I thank you for your hospitality and for sharing uh, your time of worship here with me. Uh, so, so Grayson and, and Corey have already mentioned this, that uh, we're talking today about what it means to forgive God and beginning this, this new series. And so, so again, you're, you're thinking, does, does that mean God has sinned against me in some way? And, and these guys have already said, no, that's not, that's not where we're going. But I would ask you to think, is there some injustice that you hold against God? Is there some unanswered prayer in your life that, that you haven't been able to work out, and you haven't been able to, to, to let go of? And even as we come to those times of worship and, and we're talking about the things that the Lord gives and the things that the Lord takes away, and we follow that line, blessed be the name of the Lord, is, is there something that just kind of rises up and catches in your throat that keeps you from being able to sing that with all of your being. In our dialogue about this together, Corey said something to me that I want to share with you because I know you'll be hearing it from his lips over the next few weeks. He said, I want us to think about this simple yet powerful question. 
What do we need to forgive God for so that we can enter back into full relationship with him? And to help you with your thinking as you replay the story of your life, as Corey mentioned, we're thinking about the word of God as it is found in this Old Testament book, the book of Job. I have to admit to you before we dive in that uh, Job is a section of the biblical library that I don't visit very much. Okay? I don't spend a lot of time in this section of the library. Uh, I much prefer the section that has the stories about Jesus. Uh, as I look at that section, the, the, the carpet around those shelves is pretty uh, worn out because <laughs> I, I like walking through there. Or the, the section with Paul's writings that Corey referenced one just a moment ago. I look at that section of the library and I reach for those, those titles and the spines of those books are kind of cracked. They're worn out from use. I much prefer those sections of the biblical library. But when I, I wander over into this section, uh, I'll be honest with you, I, I find a lot of cobwebs. <laughs> Uh, I, don't, I don't hang out in this section very often, and, and it's for good reason, because I'm not sure that I like what I find on this shelf. They tell us that the book of Job is, is the oldest writing in the scriptures. It's, in fact, according to some scholars, it, it could be the oldest extant piece of literature in all of human history. And it's made up of poetry, mostly. It's just eloquent, elegantly put together poetry. But that poetry is bookended by prose. It's, it's bookended by story. And it's the story of a man named Job. And his name, the name Job, it means the persecuted one. Would you take a book off the shelf entitled The Persecuted One? <laughs> we can tell pretty quickly what we're in for just by looking at the title. This is how Job's story begins in Job chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And he was blameless and he was upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. And then we get the list of all of his possessions, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Job... Just Put the pause button for a second. Job is uh, a business mogul. He's extremely wealthy. Again, we got the list of all his possessions and sheep and cattle and livestock and all that stuff. 
Um, he's a family man, seven sons and three daughters, and every day of the week, <laughs> his sons are throwing a party, you know, I don't know if he named them, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or whatever, but each day they have their own day, and they're the ones fixing the meal, so the family gets together every day, and then Job, not only is, is he a, a business mogul and a family man, he's a priest, says that he is so devout and so holy, he is blameless and he is upright, so much so that every day he gets together and he thinks, you know, all right, when my kids were, were partying last night, it might be that they did something that they shouldn't, so he consecrates them and he makes burnt offerings on their behalf. You're talking about a man of exemplary character, the kind of man that you would want on any board in town and a family man to boot. Verse 6 of chapter 1, the setting shifts. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came along. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And then Satan answered the Lord, well, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to his face, to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell among them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you his servants, his oxen, his donkeys, his camels, his sheep all gone just like that but the worst is still to come while he was yet speaking there came another and said your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, the common forms of mourning in the ancient world. And he fell on the ground and worshipped, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. Job acknowledges feeling naked, feeling exposed by his grief. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then this. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. I have to be honest with you. I really hope this is a parable. 
I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. You know, I believe the Bible is, is the truth from God. But, but I really hope that this is the one place where, again, we've, we've wandered into a different section. Because what happens to Job is just unspeakable. He's blameless and upright. And the author, whoever it is, writes that for us twice so that we'll, we'll see and understand He's blameless and, and, and upright. He's lost everything. But then the kicker is then his, his children all in one day. And, and to make matters worse, this is all sort of in the, in the context of a cosmic wager between God and, and Satan. And poor Job, he has no idea what is happening off stage. He has no idea what is happening in the courts of heaven. But from this moment forward, he will flinch every time a servant walks through the door. But in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This story really challenges me because there have been seasons in my life when I've been the anti-Job. There have been seasons in my life when I have charged God with wrong. There came a time when I needed to forgive God. I want to show you a picture of my family uh, growing up. I grew up in a, in a good home in, in Lebanon, Tennessee. Uh, these, uh, these are some of the people that mean the most to me. You see my father and my mother there, Al and Myrna Bybee, and they were very good parents. They were very loving. I have an older sister named Tara, and she is 12 years older than me. Uh, the doctors actually told my mother after Tara was born that, that she would not be able to have any more children. And my mother, being the, the woman of faith that she was, she refused to accept that. She found a prayer from uh, an Old Testament character, the prayer of a woman named Hannah. And it was Hannah's prayer that if God would give her a son, that she would then turn that child back over to the Lord. So my mother told me at one point, I think I was a teenager, she said, you know, I had trouble, um, you know, getting pregnant again. And I was like, Mom, I don't want to hear it. This is a gross conversation. Wherever you're going from here... That's an awful lead into a conversation that you want to have with your son. Uh, she was, I just want you to know, like, there's this prayer in the Old Testament of Hannah, and she prayed for a son, and she said if God would give her a son, he'd give, her back, give that child back over to God. And she said, so I prayed that if God would give me a son, I would turn him into a preacher. <laughs> and so you know what I said in response to that? I said, well, Mom, that's on you, right? <laughs> I mean... I didn't pray that. <laughs> I don't want that, and I'm not going to do that. Right? Ironic, I know. Okay. Um, when, when he was 44 years old, my dad got sick. Uh, my dad was the volume in our house. He was the funniest person that I've ever known. He was a great storyteller. He was like unintentionally funny. He tells uh, tell a story about walking outside to check the mail, and I would just crack up. He was just so funny. He could sell ice in an igloo too. He was a salesman. He was the 
leading salesman in the southeast region for the Corey Company, which was a division in the late 70s, early 80s, a division of the Hershey Chocolate Company. My dad sold coffee and coffee paraphernalia to businesses in downtown Nashville. He was diagnosed with a very rare form of of lung cancer. The doctors thought that it was treatable, they said, with some experimental meds. They, uh, They said, we think, Mr. Bybee, that you will be living another 20 years. So he started these meds. Over time, we began to realize that the experimental drugs weren't helping. Over time, Dad seemed to just get worse and worse. He stopped laughing as much, <laughs> didn't get the guitar and go to the den and play anymore. He, he spent more time in bed. My dad was 6'2". He weighed about 220 pounds. He was just this mountain of a man to me. But that summer, we, we watched as the combination of meds and cancer just wore him down. I knew it was bad when he stopped coming to church. That summer, my mother and I would sit together at church. My sister, being 12 years older than me, uh, had just married the previous August. She married my brother-in-law. And at church, people would come up and ask my mom how dad was doing. And she would tell them things that she wouldn't tell me. That's when I began to realize that uh, things were, were getting bad for him. All that coincided also with, um, with my Bible reading. I loved to, to read, and I was guilty all the time of bringing books to the dinner table to read. I much enjoyed reading rather than talking to, you know, my family. And so uh, my parents were trying to break me of this habit. I said, Jason, you've got to stop bringing books to the table. This is a time for us to talk and interact. And I found a loophole in their rule. If I brought the Bible to the dinner table, they had a hard time telling me I couldn't read. So I, so I would read the Bible. I was just consumed with, like, Scripture. And something clicked right about this time where the stories that I'd been reading all my life, they weren't, like, just little episodic sort of Bible stories, but it all began to fit together as kind of this grand narrative. And I began to, to really sense in my bones that I wanted to follow Jesus like Simon Peter and Paul and all of these guys and the adventure that came with that. I, I wanted that and I, I wanted forgiveness. I, I wanted grace. I wanted eternity, but I really wanted the adventure of following Jesus. And it never occurred to me to talk to my parents about that. And so one Sunday morning, my mother, you know, and I are here what was typical is that we, when I was growing up, we would always offer an invitation. Anyone who wanted to respond to the gospel, you know, you walk down the aisle. And, and so uh, typically, by the time the invitation was offered, that was my cue to, like, get up and go to the back. You know, I'd done my time as, you know, a 10-year-old sitting through the sermon. Now it was time to go out and, you know, go to the bathroom, get a drink of water, wait for mom at the car, okay? But uh, so, so when the invitation was offered on this one particular Sunday morning, and I'd already made this decision that I was going to follow Jesus, I just crawled across my mom. But instead of going back to the car, I just I walked down front. I crawled over mom and just took off. Never thought like, hey, mom, you might want to know. It's the biggest day of my life. I just want to let you, you know, have a heads up. So, so I start walking down the aisle, and I'm picturing you know, all the heroes of faith, right? Hebrews 11, they're cheering me on, whatever. And I'm halfway down the aisle, and I feel this hand on my shoulder, and I turn around, it's my mother. She says, what are you doing? 
I'm like, seriously, like, what am I doing? You know, I'm mowing the yard. Ma. I'm like, what do you think I'm doing? You know, no, I'm, I'm like, I'm responding. I'm all in on this. And she's like, you can't do this. And I'm like, mom, you're supposed to encourage this. And she was like, no, 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 your dad's not here. It will break his heart to not be here for this. She said, you're waiting until Wednesday night. We had this hypothetical, you know, theological conversation in the aisle. Like, what happens if Jesus comes back before Wednesday night and then eternity is all gone for me? You know? <laughs> and, I, and I know that, that some in our church probably thought my mother was just the most godless woman because she grabbed my arm and marched me back to my seat, right? And I'm so glad she did because that Wednesday night, back in the wild wild west we would have a little devotional before class in here and offer the invitation again before we went to our bible classes on wednesday night and i responded to the invitation that wednesday night my dad was there and he walked me down the aisle and he sat right there on the front row while our preacher baptized me and that was the last time that my dad was ever at church Uh, by that fall it, it had gotten pretty bad Cancer had spread to dad's kidneys. Um, in fact, kidney failure is listed on his death certificate as a cause of death. He was just withering away to nothing. We had a hospital bed in our room, at the, in our living room at this time. He required around-the-clock care. On October 20th, I went in, as I always did every morning, to go and say goodbye to my father before I left for school. I was about to walk into the living room, and my mom grabbed me again. And she said, I don't, I don't think you should go in there. I said, why? And she said, I just don't think you need to see your dad in the condition that he's in. Well, she won the baptism argument, but I was going to see my dad. And so I went in. And I learned later what the term coma means. He'd slipped into a coma that night. And I grabbed my dad's hand. I said, Daddy, I'm, I'm heading off to school. I'll see you when I get home. That's the first time I can ever remember calling his name and not having a response. And the Holy Spirit, I believe, gave me some understanding in that moment. Because I, with the Lord as my witness, I had this thought. The thought was, he's still alive, but he's not really living. And I let go of my dad's hand, and I went into the next room. And I prayed a prayer. I prayed, God, if the only reason my father is still alive is for me to have a dad. I said, I don't want that. And so I said, Father, it is is okay with me if you take my dad as long as you promise to be my father. I was 10 years old. I got in the car, went to school, I took a spelling test, I did all the things I was supposed to do that morning. Right at lunchtime, I get a call over the intercom, they tell me to come to the principal's office, and I walk in and I see my mother standing there to pick me up, and I knew. I don't remember much about my dad's funeral. Even though I prayed that prayer, by the time his funeral came around, I just remember being really, really angry. My only memory of my dad's funeral is I remember punching a folding chair at the funeral home in a room off to the side just before his funeral. And I, and I broke it. 
And I remember my mother reaching out and just taking my hand, like holding my hand and leading me out into the service. And she held my hand the whole time. That's what I remember about my dad's funeral. And that is a good image for the next few years of my life. Because in those teenage years, any time that I, I felt the impulse to, to be reckless or to, to lash out, my mom was there. She was there to take me to every baseball game, you know. She was the one to teach me how to drive a car. I'm pretty sure we both learned how to change a tire at the same time. We had no idea. Right? But more importantly than that, she was there to hold my angry heart. And God used my mother. To fulfill that promise. He fulfilled his promise to be my father through my mother. When I was 17, my mom got sick. And without her to hold my angry heart, I I really went to a dark place. The fall of 1993, my mom was really, really tired. My mom was an educator. And so like most educators in August, they're really tired. (laughs) But... My mom and my sister had a really great relationship, and Tara noticed that, that mom had, she had this, this mole on her back, and it had begun to kind of change shape and had some jagged edges, and so, um, so my, my sister arranged for my mom to go see a doctor in town. And as an educator, my mom couldn't get there until like 3.30 or 4, and so she got there, and, and the doctor joked with my mom that he was on his way to the golf course, so he took a look at the spot on her back and said, oh, I think you're fine, Mrs. Bybee. Uh, Call me if you need me. Well, she wasn't fine. By January, she was back seeing another doctor. The diagnosis came back of malignant melanoma. By that point, it had spread to her lymph nodes and other places. By early February, she'd been given three weeks to live. She doubled that estimate by living for six weeks. So there is grace in that. But it all happened so fast. She took an immediate leave of absence from school. She started an aggressive round of chemo. But before long, she was hospitalized in Nashville. My sister and I were driving back and forth to visit. One of the last times that I saw her, my sister and I were there together. And Tara had just had a baby. She'd had her second child, my nephew, Micah, just a few days earlier. So Tara and mom sat there and they talked a lot about baby stuff and I just sort of sat in the corner and didn't say much. And Toward the end of our visit, mom asked me how school was going. She asked me about my baseball season, um, but I, I just didn't have much to say. And so my mom took my hand again. I like to think that she knew she wasn't going to be there much longer to hold on to that angry heart of mine. And so she told me that she loved me. She told me how proud she was of me. And by the end of that week, she was gone. The cancer spread to her brain in the last few days. It was really bad. And at her funeral, I I made a decision. And this is the part of the story that I don't want to glorify, but I have to be honest with you and tell you about this. I, I decided that I was done with God. You know, Job did not charge God with any wrong. I was the anti Job. Because I blamed God for all of it. I said, it's not enough that you took my dad. I'll give you that. I prayed that. So, okay. But my mom too? Seriously? My mom was the best person I've ever known. And she was on every prayer list in town. 
six weeks later, she was gone. So without her to hold my angry heart, I lashed out. Every terrible thing you can say to another person, I said to God. Every four-letter word, every awful thing. I half hoped that he didn't exist because I just couldn't square my experience of God with what I was going through. But, but then again, I hoped that he was real. So I'd have someone to yell at. And as I watched them lower her casket into the ground, I said, it's going to take more than this to break me. I vowed not to shed one more tear. told God, I said, you don't get any more of my tears. And for one full year, I kept my word. Can you believe that? It's by the grace of God that I'm not, you know, in an institution somewhere because that is so not healthy. But you can live for a long time on anger. I know I did. Outwardly, I looked like I had it all together. I still had a 4.0 GPA. I still led you know, devotionals in youth group. I was voted most talented in my senior class. I learned to quote Romans 8.28 to people before they quoted it to me to keep them out of my business. But inside, I was dying. A full year after my mom's passing, I had an encounter with God. And this is where we'll close. I hadn't prayed in over a year, unless you count swearing at God as prayer. Hadn't really been spending too much time in the Bible either. But these events all came together in a way that, looking back now, I can say it was only the hand of God. After my mother's death, I moved in with my sister. One of the benefits of having a sister 12 years older is that she and her husband and young family had a place for me to go. So I lived with them my senior year of high school. But Tara and her family, they were out of town for spring break. I'd had some baseball games scheduled, so I stayed back, but those got washed out. I came home only to find that the storm had knocked the power out and I was too broke to drive into town or to go call any friends. Couldn't call because we didn't have cell phones. So I just, all I had was this big empty house to come home to. And that helped me think about my big empty life. <laughs> I said, you can live for a long time on anger, and, but you can't live that way forever. Eventually you come to the end of your anger one year in, I reached the end of mine. And I'm here to tell you, at the end of anger is a big, gaping chasm. <laughs> and when your anger runs out, the most terrifying thing of all is trying to figure out what you're going to fill that big, gaping chasm with. Because you realize your anger isn't enough to fill it up. And I realized how empty my life was without God. I, I, I realized that, you know, I've been blaming God. I, I decided to stop blaming him for, for two seconds. I decided to give the God thing one more shot. So I went up to my room and I got my Bible off the shelf. I had to dust it off. I hadn't been using it for a while. And it fell open to this passage about how the trials that we go through can, can in, refine our faith, kind of like gold going through the fire. 
And in that reading, there was this little spark, this little spark again. And and this part of me just sort of said, yes, I hoped that that was true. And it's not like God gave me complete understanding right then and there. I just read those words and I hoped beyond hope that they were true. I really think that's the essence of faith. And that's when I remembered God's promise to be my father. And I wanted to ask him if his promise still stood. I wanted to ask him if he was still watching over that little boy who was so afraid and so lost without him. I wanted to ask if he was still watching over this little little guy who was so lost on his own. And I wanted to ask him if he... If he thought he could fill that big, gaping chasm where my anger had been for so long. And when I went to say those things to God, all I could say were the words, I'm sorry. And I sort of thought, where did that come from? But it just seemed right. So I just, it's the only thing I could say over and over is just, God, I'm sorry. And I'm I'm telling you, when, when I said those words, something inside of me broke. And all those tears that I'd been bottling up for a year or more just came flooding out like Job. I was naked and exposed by my grief. And I just began to weep. I'm not talking just a little bit of a cry either, but like full-bodied sob. I cried in the way that I couldn't have cried if my sister and her family had been at home. And I just kept repeating those words over and over. I'm sorry. I'm so, so sorry. And when I stopped blaming God, when I forgave God for the death of my parents, I felt a sense of peace come flooding in. It was a peace that I didn't even know that I needed, but it was only in contrast to that anger that I'd been filling myself with that I recognized its goodness. And it was God's peace to hold my angry heart. It was God's peace to fill the gaping chasm. I've honestly not stopped feeling that peace ever since. It doesn't mean that things are always easy. It doesn't. It's still hard. My parents weren't there when I graduated from high school. They weren't there when I graduated from college. Those were hard days. They weren't there when I got married. They weren't there when my kids were born. And it is so weird to have these two groups of people that you love with all of your heart. Your mom and your dad over here and your wife and your children over here. But those two spheres have yet to come together. I've never introduced my wife to my parents. Never seen my dad hold his grandsons. Never watched my mom comb her granddaughter's hair. So, it's not easy. I want to be clear about that. It's not easy, and I, I suspect it never will be. Because forgiving God is never easy. In fact, it might be the most difficult thing you'll ever do. But I want you to hear this. If there's, if there's something you've been hanging on to, I just want you to know there is peace on the other side of that act of forgiveness. 
And that peace is what you're looking for. It is the peace of God to hold your angry heart. It's the peace of God to fill the gaping chasm. I want to ask you to stand with me here as we close. The question is this, do you need to forgive God of something today? If so, I would encourage you to do this, to seek out the shepherds of this church. You'll see the shepherds and their wives positioned throughout the room. You know why they're there. They're there to listen. They're there to pray. If, if, you, if that can be a way for you to just release and let go, then I would encourage you to do that. Maybe as we sing this next refrain, what needs to happen is just between you and God, right where you stand. Maybe those words from Job, as we sing them now, can be sung in your soul. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If you need to forgive God, I hope you will. He who has ears, let him hear.